Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. After graduating from St Martin's College in London, she spent five years developing her unique freestyle artistic expression in Tokyo before moving to New York to further her ambitious and expansive artistic exploration of identity and the self. Welcome, this week's guest, live visual artist Chantelle Martin. Imagine there's a gigantic lake and at the edge of this lake there's like a really nice little green rowboat and I get in this little rowboat and there's two oars there. And so I row to the middle of this gigantic lake. And when I get there, I put the anchor down, I pull in the oars and I stand up in this little green rowboat. And then when I stand up, I rock and I rock and I work and I work and I see these ripples appear. And these ripples get larger and larger and larger. And I imagine that they're reaching all the way out back to the edge of the lake where I came from. And then they come back to me in the form of work and opportunities and collaborations and press and ideas and many other things. But what happens when I stop rocking and when I stop working is that these ripples disappear, they fade, they go away. And so I feel like it's there's never been one particular moment. There's just been this consistent, never-ending rocking and working and keeping that boat floating that has allowed me to be in the position that I'm in now. In this episode, we discuss the impact of her upbringing in a racially fueled district of London, how her self-belief, unique perspective, unerring curiosity and persistence propelled her along an ever-evolving non-conformist artistic career path. We discuss the impact of serendipity and how her characteristic live and spontaneous black and white compositions form the basis of an exploration into identity and the self. It's based on two philosophical questions. Who are you and are you you? Chantal talks with clarity and candor and provides insight into her creative process and some of her many collaborations, including Kendrick Lamar and the New York City Ballet. I hope you enjoy this freestyle episode of Truth Telling and Seeking with Chantel Martin. Welcome, Chantel. Welcome, Chantel Martin. Thanks for being on the Impossible Network podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, wonderful. Thank you for making the time. And so excited to have our first artist, performance artist, um, on the show, which is going to be really cool to hear your journey. Yeah, it's a nice Friday, rainy afternoon. Perfect, so it's exactly. Perfect yeah. Thing to do. yeah, perfect springtime weather in New York, <laughs> just like London or Edinburgh, home from home. Well, um, we always like to start off with our guests' journeys and their, their, their childhood. So really love you to talk a bit about how your artistic journey began, um, your childhood, where you grew up, your upbringing, the impact of your, uh, the guidance of your parents, the influence of your peers and school life. And it's just a free flow where you take it. So I'm from South East London and uh, from a lovely place called Thamesmead. I don't know oh, if you're yeah, familiar I, with I it. I do indeed, yeah. Yeah, lo- lovely place, you know, uh, Built in the late 1960s, one of these bigger kind of concrete council housing estates that was built after Second World War. And yeah, it was an interesting place growing up. When I talk about it, I'm talking about the Thamesmead or the London that I used to know versus what it is now, because I I recognise it's a very different place now. And it was an interesting place growing up. You know, generally, I didn't really realise at the time, but it's 
well, actually, I did really realize it at the time. It's very white, it's very working class, very racist, very homophobic, you know, and all the things that come with that. So it was interesting growing up there, you know, being brown with an Afro, having five siblings from a different dad, and they're all blonde and blue eyed. And, you know, coming from a place where we knew one person that lived with their mum and their dad, and we thought that was really weird. And, you know, it wasn't a stepdad, it wasn't the mum's boyfriend, it was, you know, and so I guess that was the norm, you know, that people didn't know who their dad was or the, the mum's with a boyfriend or something like that. But, Jean, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, just like all of us, you start drawing and you start writing at quite a young age. And, and I did. And I felt that when I used to write or when I used to draw at quite a young age, it helped. It made me feel better. I was also a little bit of a loner as a what kid. What was the age difference between you and your siblings? I'm so I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest of six, and then the youngest is maybe ten years younger than me. So mm. very slim kind of differences. So there's probably about a year and a bit mm. between us all. And um, so growing up, my mum was either you know pregnant or nursing or about to have a baby. And um, you're probably left to your own devices <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah. So I pretty much in a way kind of raised myself. You know, eldest of six kids. Um, with a mum that's mostly kind of a single mum most of that time and yeah I had you know that responsibility of an older sister trying to look after my brothers <laughs> and sisters in in this kind of space and but I you know I loved cartoons Saturday morning cartoons were the best um, cereal drawing life was simple then you know Nintendo what was your favorite show growing up I loved all the you know all the cartoons like gummy bears thundercats you know Captain Planet, mm. the Smurfs, Fraggle Rock, all, all of that stuff. Just all, all the classic 80s cartoons. Do you think that the, any of these illustrators and um, animators affected you and influenced you? Yeah, like yes and no. So I, I think when I think back, you know, when people ask me as a kid, what do you want to be when you're older? I would say a runner or a cartoonist. And I think because there wasn't art per se around me, there wasn't galleries, there wasn't museums, there wasn't really art, mm -hmm. but what I did have is cartoons and I think there was something really amazing about this drawn world that became real you know as kids when you watch these movies they're real and so I, there was something that I found attractive to that of creating your own universes creating your own worlds and and so yeah if people ask me what do you want to be mm -hmm. when you're older yeah cartoonist or a runner you know okay, I, was, I've got, I, was, I've got I was fast I've got to ask about runner because I was a runner as well yeah, yeah so well, what, I, was, what? I was always the fastest girl in school yep. you know mm -hmm. so so you're going to you aspirations to be 100 meter 200 well, meter olympian probably 200 meters yeah, yeah. Okay. and you, you know it's like at, at that time it's like what are you good at oh I'm mm -hmm. good at running and I'm good at drawing you know so just much fun why do you think because you could have gone either way then well, you know, running, I, I was pretty good and I ran for a team and I ran for my school. Mm. But then around 16, 17, you know, I got a boyfriend, I had exams, I stopped training. And so, you know, you have to be super dedicated at that age and, and not have all of those things to mm -hmm. be successful at that. So, you know, that kind of fell away as around that age when I was being distracted. Your family encouraged you? Did they, yeah. they recognise that you had a talent? You know, I think for a lot of us, especially, you know, maybe coming from these spaces, you know, if you have parents that are education driven, then you have that influence. Right. But, you know, my mum didn't finish school. My grandmother didn't finish school. Actually, no one in my family ever finished school. So it wasn't something that was important. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a parent that finished school, you understand the importance of education. 
But if you've not been through that system, I feel like it's sometimes hard for parents to enforce that on their children. For me, I naturally like school. I like going to school. I liked the work that we did there. It always felt like it was easy for me. So there wasn't any problems with getting me to school, but there wasn't any encouragement to go to school or to draw more because it's not like, oh, wait, they see a clear path. Like my mum could never imagine I'd be an artist Mm. because we never knew any. We never knew that existed. So, you know, at that point, it's just like, you just want, I get, I'm just assuming you just want your kids to survive and be okay Mm. and get a job and be with someone that's nice that doesn't hit them or abuse them and and you know you're on a good role so I feel like in in some of these worlds or especially where I'm coming from people aren't imagining a lot for you you know there aren't a lot of options of what you can be or what you should be and you're talking your family and the system itself I'm just talking more of like a working class system Mm -hmm. you know you're from a working class system there's a system in place for a reason right and and I, I feel sometimes like as much as we want to say like we want education for everyone and we want equal opportunities for everyone, it's like, yes, we do. But we also want a system in place so that we have people doing the jobs here. We have people who can get educated here. We can keep, you know, a certain class here. And these are the people that are going to buy houses and, you know, have an impact in the world and will become bankers and traders and things like that. But there's also a place for everyone else that we need to be our bus drivers and our nurses and our plumbers and our movers. Well, and our... We're going to go and talk about that. Yeah. That might be changing in yeah, the world yeah. we're entering but, into. But like I said, this is where I'm coming from. And, yeah. and, and also, you know, we're in a different world now because, you know, we have social media and we have the Internet. And when I was growing up, you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have social media. So if you couldn't see it, you literally couldn't be it. Because how can you imagine something that someone's not showing you? And then think that you could become that thing. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot more barriers and hurdles to try and be something that is outside of your system. And especially for, you know, as a parent, perhaps to be like, I want you to be this thing that I don't know exists that I can't even see. You know, now with with social media and with the Internet, we can say, oh, that looks like Mm -hmm. what I want to do or that inspires something in me or that looks like something I could be passionate about. And I think, therefore, you can see it and that could be a seed, you know. I wanted to be a cartoonist because I could see cartoons. You know, they were tangible to me. You know, I had Disney videos on my shelf, you know, like the VHS cassette tapes. So it was something that was tangible. It was something that I could be. It was something that I could see. Beyond that, like being an artist that puts things in museums or galleries or exhibitions or shows like that. Or real time. Yeah, that didn't exist. Or real time. That didn't exist. A lot of people in the situations would be conditioned with the way the brain works with neuroplasticity to have self-limiting beliefs to be told, no, you're not going to be doing that. Forget it. That's not where you're coming from. And it's certainly not where you're going. What was it in you that gave you that sense of desire, the belief, and to drive yourself forward to actually achieve what you've achieved? It's, it's interesting because I think about this a lot. You know, I, I love my family. I love my brother and sisters. I, 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 I love them all. But I have to think a lot why, you know, out of the six of us, I'm the only one that finished school. And then now my brothers and sisters have kids and my oldest nieces and nephews, now they're dropping out of school. And my mum didn't finish school and my grandmother didn't finish school. But especially with my siblings, you know, we ate the same food. We had the same mum. We grew up in the same house. But perhaps what was different is that I looked different. 
So, you know, for example, I remember I was visiting back home when I was not living at home for a little bit. I, I went back to visit and I just walked in the house and I just heard, Lisa, 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 a black girl just went in your house. <laughs> and then my, I just, I looked at my sister and I just saw her looking really confused and she looks around and she says, Oi, that's my sister, <laughs> Chantelle. She's not black. And, and I realized like, oh, you know, we have these family units where in the family, you know, we're siblings. In the family, that's our mum. In the family, we're eating the same food. We're raised the same. It doesn't matter what color we are. We don't see color. They're my siblings. That's my mm -hmm. sister. But as soon as I would walk out of the house... That's when people would put their emotional baggage on me of what it looks like or what it is to be me. So they see a black girl walking in or out of a house. And so that means when I was growing up in Thamesmead, which was a, a very white racist environment, people see me as something else. They see me as something other. And so, you know, as a kid, you, you pick up on that, even if it's not so directly, but I think in a way it was my first passport. It was my first like get out of Thamesmead card mm -hmm. because if people see something different in you, then they don't necessarily give you that pressure or the same pressure that my siblings experienced to fit in. You know, they had mm -hmm. this extreme pressure to like do drugs or like not go to school or like stay out late or do all these things. And when I turned up with like holes in my clothes or I was like drawing all the time, people would be like, oh, that's okay. It's just Chantel. Because already they didn't think that I was one of them. They didn't think that I was a part of them. And so you're allowed to be different. And so I think for me, that is where I started to succeed. And perhaps my family didn't because my sisters had that pressure of like, oh, don't go to school. And so they wouldn't go to school when no one ever told me not to go to school. And if I said, no, I want to go, then they wouldn't pressure me to like bunk off or not mm. go. So I think looking different and being different was the thing that enabled me to take my own path in a way. Mm. You know, we're all born with these strong personalities. Mm -hmm. And I was born with a personality where, you know, I was very organized as a kid and I was very introverted as a kid and I was inclined to do art stuff. And and, you know, for a lot of mixed race kids where I grew up who were perhaps experiencing that same thing, they either went really white or really black. Like they felt like they had to take a side because people were making them choose where I felt like I just became really me. For me to have done that was very much equated to the personality that I came with or that I was born mm -hmm. with or that I already had. I remember watching the amazing Ken Robinson TED Talk, where he talks about how the education system kills creativity. Oh, I've not seen it, but, you, you, but you I have, could agree. You have to watch it because it's exactly, I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful TED Talk and he's a great entertainer while he delivers it. But it is that case that the system is conditioned to try and drive people in down a certain route because of the, the way that the education was structured in the last century to sort of deliver a workforce to do industrial jobs. And obviously it's changed, but... You, again, you rejected that. You kept believing in yourself and sort of creating and connecting with your own individuality and pursuing your own, allowing your personality to grow through your, through your art. Yeah, you know, and just to go back on a point, you said, you know, I, I believed in myself and I don't think mm. I ever did believe in myself at that mm. age. Uh, I was just surviving. You know, I was just trying to get to the next stage of life 
or get to the next stage of that month or that week or that year. And, you know, you survive enough, you, you end up getting in slightly better circumstances and better circumstances and better circumstances. But I think at a young age, and I never believed in myself. But you had a desire. I had passion and I had uh-huh. um, a desire and I had a force, uh-huh. but I don't think there was belief there at an early stage. Maybe it was being crushed. Who, who knows? Who knows? But, but um, when on those early years before pre, let's say between school and getting to art college in St. Martin's, did, did you realise you were on a path? No, not at all. You know, even... Because you'd given up on running. You'd said, right, I'm not going to do that at 16. But you continued with your illustrations, your artistic style developing. Where, yeah. did, where did you think you were going at that stage? Well, I, I only did art at 16. You know, so you 16, I did A-levels because I didn't want to get a job then. And so I did A-level biology, physics and design technology. After about two weeks, I dropped biology, uh, biology and then I dropped physics uh, then I picked biology back up, but you have to do free, a minimum of three A-levels. And so I didn't do GCSE art, so I necessarily shouldn't have been allowed to do A-level art, but I begged the teacher and said, hey, you know, I thought it's probably the easiest thing for me to do. So one of the teachers remembered me from before GCSE, so she said, okay, you can come into A-level art. But it wasn't like I wanted to do A-level art, I just needed to make up three A-levels. And I honestly thought I'd probably go and do sports science or something like that. And that's the only reason I was trying to do the sciences. And then my A-level art teacher was like, well, Chantelle, you know, at this stage, you know, we're coming to an end of A-levels. You probably shouldn't apply for art school because I don't think you get in. And so no one else was presenting any other options at that point. And so I was like, well, let me just prove this person wrong. And so I applied for art school and I got in. What was your portfolio like at that time? The portfolio was a little bit odd. You know, I, I remember everyone at that time was doing still life and the teacher would be like, use brown. I'd be like, I don't like using brown or like mix your own colours. I don't like mixing my own colours. And and so actually at that time, so, you know, you're around 18, 19 at that time, I, I collected a lot of dust. I I still have these sketchbooks where it, it's just dust samples from around different locations and dust as almost drawings. And... I built a lot of things from wire and did a lot more sculptural things. And so very, very different from the still lives that Which everyone else probably was doing. made your portfolio stand out. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, it, it was an earlier life of, of the only guidance being what people told me I couldn't do. And so sometimes that is the route that we follow. If, you know, if no one's there telling you what you can do, you do what people tell you you can't do. Drawing and writing, we're at this point where we feel like it's reserved for artists and it's reserved for writers and it's reserved for creatives. But, you know, there's a reason why we all draw as children. You know, initially is to, you know, is more about motor skill building. But at some point, I feel like it's something that is given to us. It's a gift to us. It's this personal thing to ourselves. You know, you're able to take something from your head to your hands and have this personal experience with yourself. I believe it's also a tool that we're given that allows us to deal with our environment and it allows us to deal with ourselves, and it allows us to deal with these emotions. And we do people a disservice when we say, oh no, drawings for artists. And, or, or we feel implied to say, oh, I can't draw because I'm not an artist. But it's like, no, you don't have to draw to be an artist. You don't have to be a writer to write because there is a huge benefit 
that you get from doing these things. And so, you know, I'm a huge advocate in people utilizing this experience with yourself from your head to your hand. So that philosophy, you've got this belief that, you know, writing flow from head to hand, you don't have to be a writer, you don't have to be an artist. I heard you also say you didn't feel you justified the word to be called an artist. Mm. And in a sense, you're saying anyone can do it, but they don't need to feel justified to do it. I'd love to know, first of all, when did you feel you were at that point, that tipping point happened and you said, right, I am now an artist. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's interesting, right? Because on, I was talking to a friend about this recently and, you know, I said it took me many, many, many years to call myself an artist because I didn't feel like I deserved to call myself an artist before because I didn't feel like I'd put the work in. Ah. But what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't reserve writing and drawing to be an artist. And, and, and if I'm saying, hey, like, you'll be a much happier person if you start writing and drawing. doesn't mean that you have to be like, this is my career and I need to show these and exhibit these. And it's like, no, you do it for yourself. And I think artists are doing it for other people in a way. And, and, but I encourage people to do that for themselves. From what I can see, you've been brilliant at defining a really single-minded expression of your form of art and sticking to it and further developing it through the whole journey from Japan to where you are now and your collaborations. How are you encouraging and guiding your students to identify that puts their particular, where their particular focus or talent is when many of them, as you say, are encouraged to say, do life drawing or, or do um, clay work? Yeah. So I think for me, the initial feeling came from starting my career in Japan. You know, I, I started in a country that, you know, is about craftsmanship, mm, you know, is is a country that's craft based and it's a country that is, or a culture that is about mastery. And you go there and, you know, you there's a chopstick family and they've been learning to make chopsticks for generations and they've been perfecting it. And there's, they're not trying to do everything mm -hmm. and they're not trying to rush and they're, they're not trying to force it. Starting my career in that environment of being like, oh, wait, there's no rush. I can be patient. I can think about one thing that I perhaps want to master in this lifetime. Maybe that could be a line. Maybe that could be drawing. If I am able to focus and be patient and take my time with this one thing, I wonder how far I can take it. Mm -hmm. And drawing is something that we can all do. Every one of us can draw. But now think about the mastery and the patience and the time that goes into making a drawing recognizably you, recognizably yours, so that when someone looks at that drawing, they say, oh, Chantelle did that. Mm -hmm. And then now you think about everyone on this planet can draw and do that, but there's something about that line and the confidence of that line that speaks to someone's name. And so I think that was firstly a really strong foundation that, that came to me and or that, you know, was there and that I discovered. Just a quick question in terms of the, the timing on this. Was this pre-St. Martin's? So I, I moved to Japan after St. Martin's. Okay, so, so I, already, yeah. I graduated St. Martin's in 2003 and then moved to Japan. And so I, I'm in this culture with all those things. And, and then also, you know, I was drawing a lot when I got to Japan and, and kind of, you know, accidentally I ended up in the avant-garde club scene or event scene and you know and a friend basically invited me to come and do some drawing alongside the band and 
at that time, my drawing was really, really, really small scale. So I said, well, what if I draw under an OHP, you know, mm -hmm. or a visual presenter? And we project that on, on and around the band. And so she said, great. And so, you know, imagine you have this Japanese avant-garde, weird, noisy band playing. They made all their own instruments. And there's me at the back under, a, uh, you know, an overhead projector or visual presenter. And I have notebooks and pens and post-it notes and magnifying glasses. And then the band starts playing and I start drawing. And when I start drawing, I realize that, oh, when I'm not drawing, then the screen is blank and nothing's happening. So I have to keep drawing and I have to keep moving and I have to keep making and I have to keep dancing with my hands and my pens. And what that did is it put me in a position where I had no time to think, no time to plan, no time to hesitate, no time to be insecure. But more importantly, I had no time to be anyone else but myself. And imagine after that first show of drawing for about 40 minutes, almost zoning out, you know, going into that flow and, and, and coming to the end of it and being like, oh, wow, that's what I look like. That's what I look like when there's no other things involved, when you're not thinking, when you're not planning, when you're not hesitating, when you're not being anyone else but yourself, this is what I So was like. that your first ex experience of live art? Yes, totally. And I got completely hooked to that. And, and so that's kind of almost the philosophy that I'm bringing into mm. the work that I do with some of my students. You know, it's almost like a boot camp scenario where you put them in positions where they don't have time to think about anything else. Mm. They don't have time to plan, hesitate, be insecure, all those things. They only have time to create. And then you repeat that, 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 you repeat that. And then now you can reflect back and look for the recurring shapes or themes or words or lines. And these are the things that start to create and make you. So if you're doing all these exercises and there's no time, you're only making, you're only creating. And then you look back and you say, oh, like I'm always using these words or, oh, there's always more space here on this side or, oh, like. I'm always doing this type of line. And those are the things that I say to the students, let's extract those things. Let's say that these themes are your building blocks uh -huh. of your style and your identity and your fingerprint. They make up you. I was thinking about, I interviewed a guy called Corey Cambridge, who's another podcaster. He does a great podcast called Silent Giants. But he started out as a rapper, a freestyle rapper. And I've got the most respect. I love poetry, but I, I would love to be able to freestyle rap. And talking to him about what it's like and what he taps into. And he just said, it's my unconscious. It's my unconscious mind. He said, I don't think about it. I just I live in the present and just see where the flow takes me. And in a sense, where, where you're describing that experience of flow and not thinking, it's almost like you're practicing the art of unlocking the power of your unconscious mind or your unconscious creativity or whatever, whatever that is. So, I th and it's not something that's taught uh, and it's not something that I think is encouraged in schools because we're all about trying to consciously think and plan and learn and practice. But your form of practice takes down a completely different route. It does. And it takes you down the most honest route. Mm -hmm. And and so most well, to go back to your point about individuality, that's it can only unlock your individual self. Yeah. Because that's what's buried deep inside your subconscious. The conscious mind is so affected by all the media that we consume and everything that's around us and the yeah. influences and the derivative in 
impact things have. So I'd love, yeah, to talk a bit about your personal journey of discovery into who are you and you are you. Mm. Are you you? Are you you, yeah. So maybe maybe talk about that, yeah. if you don't mind. So, you know, talking about the unconsciousness and mm. yeah, you know, I, I make a lot of music. I actually I do spoken word stuff and and it sounds or looks like a drawing, you know, because you're putting that self in a position where you're being yourself. And when you be yourself, there is a recurring theme. No matter what the medium is, there's going to be an essence or something about you in there. But, you know, there's there are these themes within my work and a, a lot of it is asking questions. And it's, it's interesting because sometimes we think that the work that we make now as artists is quite new and fresh. And then we'll look back at a sketchbook for 20, from, you know, from 20 years ago and we'll be like, oh, this question I'm asking now was there 20 years ago and 25 years ago. And, and, but it feels so fresh and new to me now. And so I think there are these constants in us and about us and within us. And for me, it's always been about asking this question of who are you? And you could say maybe that came from being different from where I'm from, or maybe that could be from imagining worlds outside of the world I'm from. And at the very young age, I put the words, who are you on my door? And so that I could see these words and think about, okay, Chantel, who are you? What path are you on? Like, where are you going? After a while, I realized that, you know, if you put the words, who are you? The first three letters are W-A-Y, way. And sometimes this big existential question that we've been asking for, for many, 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 many eons is, is very difficult to begin to answer. But if we look at those very simple first three letters of W-A-Y, it's more practical because you can just ask why, how are you finding your way in life? It's important to ask yourself these same questions, but in different ways. And so you have the question of, are you you? And you are who? And, and so they, they all have different nuances to them and, you know, almost like different permutations of, of the same thing. But I think it's about this cycle of, you know, once you find your way and you find your way to yay, like you are you, then you have to start this cycle all over again. And so at first, these questions were almost just seeds or reminders for myself. But then I saw the benefit of having other people ask themselves, like, who are they or are you you? And I, I got a little bit obsessed with this idea of, oh, I meet really smart, traveled, wealthy, interesting, creative people. And they're very good at talking about where they're from and what they, they do, do yeah. and the roles <laughs> that they play in their life. Yeah. But if I'm to ask them, like, who are you at the core without saying what you do and where you're from and the roles that you play in your life, who are you? And it doesn't matter who you are. It's something we all stumble upon. It's something we all have problems answering. I don't know. There's, a, there's an industry of yeah. therapists out there trying to help people yeah. struggle and answer these questions of sense of identity. And Yeah, we don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the words. We don't have the emotions to describe it. You know, we, I think we've been very focused on describing all these other words and mm. all these other ways of describing who we are as people that we completely ignored the core you know, I love asking this people this question because I know in a way that we'll never answer it, but perhaps by reflecting the question outside, by me asking other people the questions, perhaps I get little fragments of answers that resonate with me. And so in a way, perhaps it could be this selfish endeavor to like find out what are these words and what are the vocabulary for me to answer who I am. Or it could be me planting these seeds, knowing that it's important for us constantly 
ask ourselves and remind ourselves that we don't know who we are and that that is the important story versus what we do and where we're from. Mm. Don't want to get in down to an existential sort of bit <laughs> around <laughs> identity, but you are you in any particular moment and we're always changing. The structure, the the, the biological structure of our cells, by mm-hmm. its various nature change. It was talk, we interviewed Josh Holland, Madonna's fitness, Roger Waters' fitness coach, and he was just talking about the, the composition of our body and how it changes month to month, year to year. So we're always changing. Yeah. So your journey of you, you, you are you, is always going to be <laughs> evolving. And in a sense, we're going to come and talk about where your art's going to go because you are you today and where you, and you are you in 10 years' time are probably going to be quite different. So you ask yourself those questions constantly. They're on your door. Was there a time in which you suddenly went, ah, that may be that yay moment? And how do you how do your students react to it when you challenge them with it? Like you said, we're we're always constantly changing. I think sometimes there's these realizations and and there's these moments of celebration and understanding of self, mm-hmm. and those come with these profound moments of knowing that everything will change and that we actually know nothing. So it you know it, it is this cycle, but I, I think you know there's been moments in my life where I felt like I've made progress or I've uncovered stuff and I, I think those moments and you know it's always kind of cheesy and cliche but they've come from moments where I discovered meditation mm. and you know you peel away some of these layers and you start to understand a little bit more about yourself and you know working with students and addressing these questions or pulling them through these kind of like boot camp scenarios mm. I think for the most part they're very receptive to it and very understanding to it but I think there's also I've had resistance to it as well and I think you know with growth and with asking questions and especially questions that go a little bit against or into the surface I feel that there is a resistance from a lot of us or some of us and and so some students have been resistant to that because maybe they're not ready to do that or they don't want to hear that or Maybe you're just planting a seed that they'll yeah they'll evolve later. And I I like that's I like to call them seeds mm-hmm. because you know it's my job to plant them. It's your job to grow them. Mm-hmm. And and if they don't grow, it means you're not ready to water them. And and so that's fine. But but at least I'm consistently or, or continually asking the questions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump back to Japan. One thing I, when you were talking about the the craft nature of Japan, have you seen the film uh, Jiro, the Art of Sushi? Oh yeah, I saw it a few years ago. Yeah, which so is brilliant. Which is a, I just remember something about the eggs. Yeah, and the fantastic example: the man had spent his life going for the never-ending sort of pursuit of perfection, which yeah. I think is is a lovely sort of example of that. The other thing as well, and I, I totally bastardized it and destroyed the the expression of the word, but it's a Japanese term called ikigai, which is the intersection. Well, this was in a previous podcast I used. I said it the wrong way is the intersection of what you're good at and where your passion lies. Huh. And and it seems to me that that's exactly where your will um, has taken you. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I, I often, you know, daydream about, oh, if I came from a different background, would I have discovered something else that I would be equally passionate about and good at? You know, at the end of the day, the pen is the most accessible thing you're going to come across, doesn't matter where you're from. And so maybe I just came across something that was super, you know, accessible mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed. And actually, I don't think I really enjoyed drawing and writing to start off with. It's just something I did that held me, it helped me feel better. Um, 
So who who knows? You know, I I'm very curious and I love trying different things and I love collaborating and I love learning. And so maybe in, in a different life, in a different space, in a different place, I would have done something completely different. You use the term draw on everything, which obviously has many meanings. Yeah. Um, we love to talk about the power of curiosity. And that drawing on everything seems to be you're drawing on this universal well of creativity and inspiration. Can you just talk about what, how you tap into that? Yeah, so it was a phrase I used to use, drawing on everything. And I mm. meant that physically and metaphorically yeah. and in all the other ways. And, you know, it's, it comes back to this idea, and we mentioned it very briefly, of, of honesty. And I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm a spontaneous person, but I'm also very practical and, and very analytical and, and all these things. And so what I found is that, especially with drawing, it makes better sense that if you watch me draw, because now you understand the process, you understand the structure, and therefore you're more connected to the drawing. I think at the same time, if you're watching me draw, I put myself in that position that I was in many years ago in Japan, where I don't have time now to do anything else or to overthink things or to plan them. I'm like, oh, you're watching me. I got to be an artist. I got to draw. So I'm using you to keep myself honest. I'm using you to put myself in that position where I don't have time to be anyone else but myself. But I'm also doing it in a way that now connects us even more because now you see the structure and the way that the drawing is created. You're a part of it. You're connected to it. And so I think there's, for me, something very important about things being live, about things being in the moment, because there is this transparency and this honesty that comes with that. You know, it's very hard to maintain a practice of meditation. The, the world we live in, particularly in New York, the fast pace of it, I, you know, I got running and often just switching off when you're running is a meditative process in itself of remaining in the moment. Your freestyle art in itself, your live performances must almost be take you into a meditative state in, in its own right. Drawing is meditation. Mm. Walking is meditation. Running is meditation. And so I use drawing to meditate. I use drawing to allow the pen go wherever it wants to go. You know, when I'm drawing, I'm not saying pen go here or I want to draw this or you should draw this. I'm saying, where should we go? Take me on this journey. And so I'm almost taking a back seat. Like when you're meditating, you're taking a back seat and you're allowing your thoughts to rise and pass. And when I'm drawing, it's quite similar. I'm just allowing the pen to go and make the shapes and the characters and the words that it wants to do. And for me, it's always kind of a nice surprise at the end that it works. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you're, are you, how often are you surprised? How, how do you see it? Because obviously there is an evolution in the work that you're doing because everything is unique and every environment in which you're creating is going to be unique. Are there moments when you've, you look at it and think, actually, there's something different about this one that has taken it a step on beyond where I've been over the last, let's say, six months or a year? Yes. And often, but not often, you know, it happened at the ballet. So for example, you know, I just collaborated with the New York City Ballet and for a few weeks I went in, I, you know, I took these massive canvases and I drew during rehearsals. And I noticed when I, you know, the first bunch of the drawings they're very like me they're the same characters but by midway I started to see some of my faces or recognizable um, 
characters disappear and these other forms and shapes come in and it was kind of weird because I'm like whoa what is this I've not drawn this before. So you're before. conscious of it as as you're drawing it. Yeah you know you step back and you're like oh that's that's very different and and so I realized that there was a conversation between the dance and the choreography on stage that was influencing or affecting or driving or pushing the pen on the canvas and and that's a position where you can fight it and say, oh, this doesn't look like my drawing or this isn't what I thought I would create. Or you can go with it and be like, oh, this is infiltrating or affecting or infecting my drawing. Let me take it wherever it wants to go. And mm -hmm. that's kind of, you know, it's, it's a nice feeling because you're allowing the work to evolve and you're a witness to it. There's a curiosity about seeing how far it will go. Living in New York, having been in Japan and growing up in the UK, all these different cultural influences must have affected and, and your curiosity of what's going around you in the world. How does that consciously affect what you're doing? Are you ever sort of seeing things and, and thinking, oh, that I feel I could in integrate into my next, my next piece, my next yeah. live performance? Or do you resist that and just go, I'm going to not plan it. I'll just see where it goes. I think it's totally more subtle than that. Wherever you are, that affects the work. You know, when I was in Japan, if I look at old drawings, they were more delicate. They were more detailed. They were almost more diaristic. Mm -hmm. They involved more realistic kind of scenes of, of Japanese typography or temples or objects. These things were in the work. So I think the environment affected the scale. It affected the almost a closeness that I had with the work. It affected the content of the work. It affected the narrative of the work. And then coming to New York, you know, you're in this place where it's like bigger and it's bolder and, and everything is, is at a much larger scale here. And so I saw my work evolve and grow in scale and grow in size. And I saw some of the detail like disappear. And I saw more kind of motifs come back or become, I guess, more crystallized in a way. And then if I go further back, you know, if I go back to my work that I was doing in London, it was very angry. It was very lost. It was about searching. It was about trying to find something. So I, I think the environments where I've been have influenced the work, but then also the stages that I've been in my life in mm. these different places. And, have your, also and your identity as well. Exactly, exactly. So I think, you know, if I move to Florida next week and I'm there for a year, you know, I'm sure there's going to be Mar palm trees there. <laughs> hey, there's an idea. How <laughs> 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 about sort of doing a sort of a fusion, Banksy and Chantel go to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, the environment, I think, definitely affects the work. Building on the fact you're talking about pens and your, your medium, you said earlier, the pen is accessible. And that great phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword, mm. often referred to in relation to writing, but very rarely related to art and artistic expression. I did hear you talk about how the difference when you're working commercially versus with galleries. What I'm interested in there is what about when you're dealing with social issues and social justice and the things where presumably your ability to use your freestyle, real-time art could have incredible power in relation to uh, important social justice movements. What's your perspective on that? And are you invited to collaborate with any organisations? So give me an example where you think kind of like the liveness would help a social justice <clears throat> movement. Let's, okay, let's take the environment. 
I used to work in advertising, so I used to work with Land Rover. We did this collaboration project back in 1997 with a, two art, London artists called Ollie and Susie. Hmm. And Ollie and Susie used to go out into the environment, into the jungles and to the Arctic, and they'd find polar bears and they would get their art pieces and they would draw just there and then with the polar bear near them. Obviously, I had someone there to protect them in case it attacked attack, attack them. Then they would leave the art and see if the polar bear would interact with it. They did the same with sharks underwater with obviously water-resistant uh, water paints and they did the same in jungles and then they would photograph it. Now that was almost in a sense of live art. I just wonder where you could take an, a, an environment and using maybe different mediums but still using your hand, head to hand, to create something on a much larger scale where it could take yeah. you. See, I, I wonder how socially environmental it is to, you know, go out and, you know, interact with these animals mm. and draw of, of course question, questionable then but, yeah definitely but, um, but that was advertising I don't do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, it depends and a lot of it depends on what the artist's agenda is right and what their work's about and mm -hmm. what they're trying to achieve my questions or, or the work that is reflected in the art is kind of a wide net we can ask everyone who they are and we can ask them about these questions of like, identity and you know I live the life basically here as a black queer woman and an artist and a foreigner and all these other things so you know there there is already a, a kind of activism in just being myself work, yeah. being out there in the world trying to be successful as me when everything has been against me in many ways you know obviously I've made it this far but but still that th it continues to be a struggle you know I, I work with a lot of charities I have done in the work donated a lot of art and you know now with organizations and charities I say you know I'd rather donate my money or my feet on the ground like I'd rather come in and mm -hmm. see if I can help you know if your work as an artist is about the environment then that's where you should be focusing your strengths and 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 your work and perhaps your your studies and if it's about you know LGBTQT rights that's where you should be doing it and you know if it's about Black Lives Matter that's where you should be doing it and mm -hmm. that's where you can focus it and so for myself, it's like where where I can support and where I can support, I do. Mm -hmm. I haven't put myself in any boxes, regardless of industry or mediums. And and we have to, you know, say that a lot of these kind of social justice collectives or conversations, it sometimes is another box, you know. And 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 sometimes I'm just trying to reach a little bit wider than that and say, hey, like if we're all eating well and thinking well and drinking well and being less angry and being more compassionate. And being kinder to the earth, these other things will kind of fall into place, you yeah. know. If you ask those questions and if we all focus on being better, happier, healthier, less angry, more compassionate beings, then we're naturally going to want to be that person that picks up trash. Yeah. We're going to want to be that person that isn't quick to judge or to stereotype. We want to be that person that can help whenever we can. And And I think it's about... Find And it comes back to finding that vocabulary of who you are. If you can say who you are at the core as a person, then you're walking high in the world. You're out there helping in the world. You're out there achieving something in the world versus being like, I want a better pr um, promotion. Going back to the striving for individuality and identifying who you are for anyone in the world that we're living in this polarized world of identity politics where people fall into these different categorizations the imperative to encourage more people to pursue who they are, yeah. to follow that journey 
of identity and to sort of be individuals is probably the only real antidote to this polarization that's pulling society yeah. apart. Let's talk a bit about your medium and the tools you use. You've developed um, new tools as you've progressed and you've developed your art and your imagination and your, taking, and your curiosities infected it, like the Flying Fortress. I saw some <laughs> of them. <laughs> Such cool tools. So are you talking about my drawing tools that yeah, I made yeah. there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I 3D designed and printed a series of drawing tools. And the idea behind that was very comfortable with one line. What if I build something that has, you know, a huge, profound change in my output? So to go from one line to two lines or to multiple lines or different thicknesses of lines. So I built these building blocks that you can put pens in and then you can draw with them. You build it and then you know what to do with it. I had no idea what to do with it when I before, but, you know, I built these tools and I've I've drawn on walls with them. I've drawn on canvases with them. I've drawn on paper with them. I've drawn in many different places with them. And it's been a really interesting exercise because, like I said, if I draw with one line, I know what to expect and I know where it's going. And in a way, the drawing's completed in my mind before I've mm. physically finished it. But now when I'm drawing with two lines, it's the unknown. And it's about live iterating. It's about putting myself in a position where when I'm drawing with two lines now, I'm like, whoa, like my trees don't look like trees. They look like train tracks and faces don't really work now. So what does work? And and so I, I love being in that position where you are literally live iterating or learning or growing and you can see it and you can feel it and it's tangible. Mm -hmm. Do you ever scare yourself? I don't know. <laughs> Do you ever, are there ever any moments during a, a live art piece where you suddenly, I mean, it's that, that being diverse situation, being underwater and thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. what happens? You know, I'm, I'm scared of other things. You know, I'm not scared about standing up in front of hundreds of thousands of people. I'm not scared about drawing live. I'm not scared about singing live or doing spoken word. You know, I'm, I'm scared of other things like mm. flying or swimming or, <laughs> or tight, you know, small spaces. You know, I'm, th those are things I'm scared of. The other stuff is just you putting yourself in an on, honest, vulnerable situation. And so the worst thing that, happens is that you learn about yourself yeah. and, and for some people that's extremely scary and for myself I, I enjoy that situation. We love to understand serendipity, um, chance, luck, happy accidents, whatever you might call it. You've talked a lot about your journey so far and I can see patterns of maybe where serendipity or whatever we end up calling it occurred. Can you maybe call out anything particular that is salient and personal to you where you feel you look back and think yeah if that hadn't happened I wouldn't be here? You know, there's many things, but I, I have I have a visual for this. I have a visual description of, of what my understanding is of this. And so it starts with, imagine there's a gigantic lake and there's, at the edge of this lake, there's like a really nice little green rowboat. And I get in this little rowboat and there's two oars there. And so I row to the middle of this gigantic lake. And when I get there, I put the anchor down. I pull in the oars and I stand up in this little green rowboat. And then when I stand up, I rock and I rock and I rock and I work and I work and I work and I rock and rock and rock and work and work and work. And I see these ripples appear and these ripples get larger and larger and larger. And I imagine that they're reaching all the way out back to the edge of the lake where I came from. And then they come back to me in the form of work and opportunities and collaborations and press, and ideas, and many other things. But what happens when I stop rocking and when I stop working is that these ripples disappear. 
they fade, they go away. And so I feel like it's, there's never been one particular moment. There's just been this consistent, never ending, rocking and working and keeping that boat floating that has allowed me to be in the position that I'm in now. I love that. I've, I thought about it a while, for a long time, because, you know, people will ask me like, oh, so how do you become a successful artist? Or, you know, young artists will be like, well, what's the thing I need to do? Or people will be like, well, so who gave you your chance? And, and so I thought about, well, how to visualize and let these people know, like, no, there hasn't been one thing or one person, or there's just been a lot of work for a really long time. And now, eventually, because of so many years, that stuff's starting to come back to me. And, you know, th that rhythm or that rocking built up momentum and maybe those things are coming back a lot quicker or a lot bigger. But there's never been me not working. That's fascinating. It's almost like the... I'd, I'd love to get Merritt's perspective on this as a quantum physicist and talking about past, the things we don't see, the, mm. the ripples in time and space of the energies that are beyond our, our cognition. Yeah. We don't know why yeah. serendipity happens or what it is, but it's certainly something we can engineer by what we do. And I think you're right. You stay static. You don't progress. There's no, there's, there's nothing. Life is about yeah. progress and life is about movement as we know. Yeah. So first you have to get in that boat, then you mm. have to row that boat, then you have to bring in the oars, you have to drop that anchor and then you have to get up and you have to work and then you have to not stop mm -hmm. forever. <laughs> what principles do you stand by? Oh, good question. Justice, freedom. We'll leave it there. Yeah, they're good ones. Uh, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be good and the right decision further down the line? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's fine. Maybe I'll come back to you. Yeah, come back to me on that one. What do you do to discover new ideas when you need space to think? I like walking. I walk a lot and I also sit at bus stops. I like to sometimes just sit and watch things go by and, you know, bus stops are kind of accepted places yeah. to do that. <laughs> and, or I just walk a lot. Mm. It helps me think. Where do you go, where do you go walking in New York? In New York, if, the, you know, it's not freezing outside along Chelsea Piers, yeah. that's a great walk there. Or even actually recently I walked from, uh, I think, meatpacking up past... Um, well, up to Central Park, mm -hmm. about 20 or 30 blocks. So yeah, walking and uh, sitting at bus stops. Mm. Favourite favorite walk in London? <laughs> favourite walk in London? Yeah. Oh, it's Around been Bexley too long. Heath. It's been yeah. too long. Yeah. <laughs> I left 15 years ago. I don't think, you know, I, when I'm there, I'm walking as a tourist. Who are your influences and inspirations? You know, influences and inspirations, it's people around me, perhaps friends from art school, perhaps friends that I made later that I've seen them work really hard and and you know they're tangible to me because I've uh -huh. seen their ups and downs and I've seen them work hard and I've seen the work or their lives progress and and so they've influenced me and and, and inspired me. How do you keep up with whether it's you may you may not but I would have thought that to some degree the, the technology is important to you in relation to your um into your art how do you keep up with it? You just have a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have, you know, I have an iPhone, I have an Android, I have a PC, I have a Mac. You know, I like to be knowledgeable and know what's going on. And so you just try and use as much of it as you can so that your knowledge doesn't kind of, you know, mm. tilder off the edge. Is there anything on, on the horizon you think could affect the medium through which you're expressing yourself at the moment? 
you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I kind of delve into technology and, you know, I've, I've worked with like printed circuit boards and interactive maps and, you know, VJ in Japan. And, and so there, there are these waves of, of technology. And, you know, I even was into like AI and drawing at some point. And, you know, now we have like blockchain and how we can integrate that with art. And so I'm always interested in technology, but as much as I am, I usually come back to pen, the pen. and paper. Mm-hmm. Our impossible question. What would your advice be to someone uh, maybe 20 years younger than you who's setting out with a big dream, a big goal, a, a grand ambition, yeah. um, but have been told, similar maybe to the sense you were given from your school, that um, you're it's impossible? 20 years younger or even 20 years older, the yeah. advice I give to everyone and the advice I would have given to myself many years ago is don't play the if game. If I had this, I could do this. If I had this, I could do this. If I had this, I could do this. What do you have? And use that to create your own opportunities. Mm. Because if people don't care for you or about you, you have to care for you and about yourself first. And you can start to do an audit of like, what do I have? Who do I have? Where do I have? And then use that to create your own opportunities. Makes me think of that. I met the author who wrote the book about the, the little red uh, paperclip. I don't know it. And he started with a red paperclip and a challenge. Can you turn a red paperclip into a house huh. by swapping it and sharing it? Yeah, and doing exactly, deals? exactly. He started with that. It's brilliant. Exactly. And he ended up with a house. Yeah. And it's an absolutely inspiring, genius journey. It yeah. should inspire anyone. So I'm going to put that in the show notes and link it to that because yeah. it's exactly what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. You know, you're an artist. It's like, well... What do I have? I only have my family and I have pen and paper. Well, do a show in your home, you know, invite your family and then do it again and then ask them to invite their friends. And, you know, each time you yeah, grow and grow and grow and grow. One of the questions some people don't like to ask, uh, don't like to ask, don't like to answer um, and, <laughs> or, uh, ask. I, or ask is if you were given the keys to the White House or Downing Street, um, what changes would you make within the, the first few weeks to change the opportunities of youth in relation to education? Uh. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated it question, is complicated, right? Yeah, um, so I think with everything, it's about exposure and it's about change. You know, if I would just mix up all of the, you know, if we're talking about a younger school level, just mix up all the schools because mm. what we have now is that we have schools with not great kind of facilities or education and then we have schools with incredible ones. And you need to mix all those students up and have them going between everything because, you know, you end up with people that say, oh, well, my school's too good for these people or these people can't come in because they're bringing all this bad stuff with them. And then you have these kids being like, oh, well, maybe, you know, we're too good for them or like they're too good for us. You know, and it's just like, no, no one's too good for anyone. You're all children. You should be given an equal opportunity. And the equal opportunity isn't being like, oh, we need to focus on bringing these bad schools to good schools it's just like no just mix everything and I think if everyone was responsible for like a kid in a different school or a different background or you know I I I need pen and paper to work this idea out a little bit more thoroughly but something about integrating the schools and mixing them you know we used to have French exchange in school like that but you know all these other different types Mm. of schools the last two questions I will finish with we always like to offer a book um, or books to our listeners that make the best comments in the comment section. Is there any book you would recommend that we give to our listeners? I also have to check on that. So uh, yeah, you I can, don't. You can come back uh, to yeah, us. I'll yeah. come back to you yeah, on okay. that one. 
And the other question is, who should we interview next? Um, I'll come back to you with a nice yeah. list on that too. There, there is another question we we've sometimes drop in, which is around who or what has made you reevaluate yourself? You know, a, a guy, I, I won't name him, but he's in England. And he did tell me, you know, you, uh, this was at a point when I was holding on to a lot of my art. And actually, I still do. But he said, you know, art's like children. It has a soul. You know, you, you give birth to it and then you let it be free and kind of live its own life. And and I, and I he basically just said, you know, like, don't be so constipated over your art. Just like let it go. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was something in that. You know, I think sometimes as artists, we cling to our own work sometimes and, and we don't want to let it go. And, and we almost imprison it which isn't the function that it should be doing. Mm. You know, if you have it all when it's locked away, then it can't be spreading the message in the way that you intend it to. So, you know, it was interesting for me to think about, oh, wait, what if is art is like little children with souls and messages that in a way we should put out there in the world as artists. So when we imprison them, we're not allowing them to live the lives that they should. Mm. You talked at the start about how your um, art reflects or not reflects but maybe has been in, on, a, on the same journey and trajectory with the environments you found yourself but it also seems to have gone up in scale you talked in Japan it was quite small it was quite precise mm-hmm. do you think that has something to do with the, just your to do with your maturity and your development or do you think it is to do with environments and if that is the case where do you think it's going to go? A bit of both Often in in my work in the corner, I'll write, don't hide in the corner. And that's constantly been a reminder to myself to put the work and myself forward. You know, I, I spent many years maybe being shy and being a loner and being a recluse and not wanting to be around people and and not liking speaking in public and doing these things. And, and so I've always had to constantly remind myself not to hide. Mm-hmm. And I think as you grow in confidence, Sometimes the work also grows in scale or visibility as a different type of scale. And so I imagine in the future, the work will do the same. You know, the work will be in situations where it's having a bigger impact, where it's been more visible, where the scale or the installations of projects will grow. And not always in size, but but often just in scale and impact and, and asking questions and, and it will change mediums. It will, you know, cross different industries. It will hopefully change things and have an impact, you know. And and sometimes as artists, there is a little bit of a responsibility to the work that we create because often it's left behind and and sometimes it's left behind and no one cares about it and there's no importance. And sometimes it's left behind and it's becomes the conversations of many generations to come. And and so trying not to also overthink that mm-hmm. and just being real to what the work is and what it wants to become and letting it kind of choose that story too by itself. You've done a lot of collaborations with people um, and with brands and personalities and also with your recent mm-hmm. New York City Ballet. I mean, obviously that's something you, you get a lot from because it's, there's input there as well as what's just coming and flowing from your, from your mind. Do you see that as something that's going to um, be a bigger part of where you're taking your, your art? Yeah, you know, it totally and yes, because... I want to do an installation in the Lincoln Center. I'm not just going to turn up and do an installation in the Lincoln Center. It has to be a collaboration. You know, my next project 
is on Governor's Island. I'm going to take over an old abandoned church and fix it up and turn it's it brilliant. into brilliant. We were there last summer oh. for it. Yeah. Okay. It's yes. a great space. So I'm, I'm going to fix up a church and turn it into a space for poetry and contemplation. And I invited the Poetry Society and the Cooper Union to come in and create programming. But that's not the kind of thing I can do just by myself. So in a way, collaboration allows you to broaden the scope. It allows you to create a product or a venue that you wouldn't be able to buy yourself. It allows you to bring in a different demographic to view the work or be a part of the installation or be a part of the conversation. And for me, if I'm collaborating with, you know, at some point my grandmother or Kendrick Lamar or the Governor's Island or the New York City Ballet, this allows me to experience and be a part of a different industry in a different world and see where we collide and, and cross over. And then what comes out of that is very unique and impactful. And then now has the chance to be exposed to a whole different demographic. Do you, is there anything you've got that you're going, I really want to get to that space? That that particular environment. Is there anything out there that's you? Well, you know, it's it's on the way here. I walked through Madison Square Park, and I'm like, oh, I'd love to have a piece of public art that sits here, mm. just like many other artists have. Or, you know, I walk past the Guggenheim, and I'm like, oh, that's a perfect canvas. Like, mm. why? Have, <laughs> yeah, just uh, why have they never let someone would, draw on the exterior? That would be a great know? permanent collection, wouldn't it? Exactly. So yes, all the time. You mm. know, I'm walking through these places, and and. And some of these places have huge legacy mm -hmm. or some of these places have huge histories. And, you know, now I, I have a mural in MIT and I have a mural in the Pulitzer Hall in Columbia University. There's starting to be these like places where, you know, I've walked through and, and thought, I'd love to have work here. Mm -hmm. You know, or even being on the subway years ago and seeing posters for the New York City Ballet Art Series. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Never imagining <laughs> yeah. that a few years later, that would be my poster in the subway because I'm doing an installation there. And, and so I think just being in these spaces and walking through them and imagining and then every day just showing up and working hard with good intention and trying to be nice and, and, and you know, being grounded and all those things. Someday that could be you. Like, who knows, maybe two years time or 10 years time, I'll walk through Madison Square Park and I'll be like, oh, look, there's my yeah. public art piece sitting here. I want to you be know. the Guggenheim, <laughs> the front of the Guggenheim. <laughs> yeah, the Guggenheim, yeah. you know, just the whole exterior. We, we had this, um, I know you did work with Y&R. Yeah. Um, and I used to work. Now, with, now VML Y&R. Yeah, I know. Cool. What have they done? Talk about an agency that doesn't understand branding. I used to work at McCann in London. It was a lovely old Art Deco building on Herbrand Street. And we, we brought in a guy called Harry Malt who's an illustrator, and we just said, look, this building, it's all white, it's gorgeous, beautiful yeah. building inside. So just go and have fun. Walk around, listen to the conversations happening, and then just draw anything. And it, it won an award, and a design award. Oh, wow. And then I left, and I came to New York, and then there was new management took over, and they painted over the, yeah. all of them. It was a whole five-story building, wow. and all the offices everywhere, and it was brilliant. To see your art lost must be really painful. Well, you know, it, it depends where it goes. And speaking of Y&R, you know, I had an incredible experience there. I, I drew on the third floor in their head office at Free Columbus yeah. Circle. Mm -hmm. They recently merged with um, VML, but actually VML brought me back in and said, hey, like the companies change, the infrastructures change. We weren't here when you created this piece, but we love the work and we want to be here when you create a new piece. So they've actually, you know, we started this conversation about extending that story. And so for me, that's incredible because it's, they're saying we recognize the legacy of the building and what we've taken on 
and we recognize that we're not a part of that, but we recognize that we have the voice and the control of continuing mm-hmm. some of these stories. And and so like complete props to them for not just painting over the work. Well, I mean, it's their version, corporate version of you are you. Yeah. What it was then, yeah. who you created, defined the character of that building and anyone yeah. walking into that third floor, what it's going to be in five years time, you know, as long as, but the great thing is that your art remains and defines the character of that space. Yeah. And that was a choice, but mm-hmm. that now they said, well, let's extend it. We'd love you to do another piece to extend this mm-hmm. now that we're an, a new entity and a new company. Brilliant. Well, Chantal, thank you very much for your time. I just want to acknowledge you particularly for, I think, your courage for asking the hard questions of yourself and through teaching other students maybe to make themselves ask the important questions that they maybe wouldn't consider asking of themselves, which I think is going to have a big benefit on society at the stage we're in. So I, I thank you for that. And thank you for adding to the, the podcast's exploration um, of what is serendipity and giving it probably the best definition yet. And um, I really look forward to seeing where your work goes. It's exciting. Your creativity is, is refreshing and inspiring. Again, thank you very much for your time and your answers and your, and your honesty. And I'll leave with a note of encouraging everyone to be less judgmental when they walk out their homes yeah you know like i said when i walked out of my home as a kid people brought their baggage and so when you walk out your home now tomorrow the day after whenever you're listening to this don't bring your baggage try and leave it at home and then also try and put yourself in positions where you can be honest Mm -hmm. pick up a pen write draw if you're on the phone write draw and reap the benefits of this gift that you were given as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, just finally, if people want to follow you and follow your art and your social media presence or connect with you, where do they do it? All of the above. <laughs> you know, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah, just Chantel, S-H-A-N-T-E-L-L, Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, usually an underscore in between. Yeah, cool. Thank you very much. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is a Fabrica Collective production and is produced by Bettina McKelly and Elaine Castillo-Keller. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.